Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. It's time for Detroit Today here on WDET. I'm Ryan Patrick Hooper filling in for Stephen Henderson. On today's show, while watching the war play out in Ukraine, have you had a hard time explaining the situation to your kids? A new article in Education Week tries to break these concepts down for students using the metaphor of sports. We'll also head over to the Detroit Opera, which will be hosting their first main stage production since the pandemic. That's all ahead here on Detroit Today after news from NPR on WDET. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. It's time for Detroit Today here on WDET. I'm Ryan Patrick Cooper filling in for Stephen Henderson. Such an honor to be introed with that music. Ahead on Detroit Today, we're going to be talking to the artistic director of the Detroit Opera. You might notice that's a different name from what you're used to, and they're getting back to pre-pandemic productions, finally getting back on stage this weekend. I'm excited for that conversation, but first, let's talk about this. While watching the war play out in Ukraine, have you had a hard time explaining the situation to your kids? Have you tried to help them understand what NATO is and why Ukraine is not part of it? What about the sanctions and what they are doing to Russia and our global economy? A new article in Education Week tries to break these concepts down for students using the metaphor of sports. Here to talk about it are two authors of that article, including Annalise Halverson and Jacinda Bauman. Annalise is an associate professor of teacher education specializing in social studies, and Jacinda Bauman is a science and social studies teacher at the James and Grace Lee Boggs School in Detroit. Annalise and Jacinda, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having us on, Ryan. A pleasure. This uh, this article really, really blew me away because I love the idea of elevating sports to talk about difficult things. Annalise, let's start with you. Why do you feel sports are a good metaphor to help students understand what is going on in Ukraine? Thanks for asking. And first, I'd just like to express our support to the people of Ukraine and what they're experiencing. Jacinda, Don, and I are all educators and just so concerned about what the kids are having to endure and what I've found is that um, I have three children of my own, and the way in which they've been able to sort of understand sports is, or understand Ukraine, is through sports. Um, the day after the uh, the invasion, um, UEFA, the um, Union of um, European Football Association, they pulled out of the uh, Champions League Cup in St. Petersburg, moved it to to France, and that was the that was the first. Uh, sort of fact that my my oldest son shared with me about that. And so I began to think, wow, you know, sports can be a really powerful way to hook kids' interests and get them to really care about what's going on, you know, in a country, in countries far, far away. So this was really a a question that that, uh, your son had brought to you. How old is your son? And and did that surprise you that he was putting the pieces together? 
<laughs> he's 13. I have three sons, 13, 11, and nine, and they're all really big sports fans. Um, but ever since a young age, they've been really, I've been using sports to actually get them to understand civil rights. I mean, they're huge fans of Jackie Robinson and Josh Gibson. Um, the Miracle on Ice movie and, and story was really compelling for them. And so I found, you know, as a social studies educator who cares deeply about, you know, history and economics and civics and geography, that, you know, learning about sports and, um, you know, the, the, the sort of racism that they've experienced or um, obstacles they've overcome can just be a really powerful way to learn about history. Annalise, have you seen this play out before? You know, are there have there been other topics that uh, sports have been used to, to tackle, whether it's with your kids or in the classroom? Absolutely. My colleague, Don McClure, and I, who's a co-author of this article, um, we've been studying the ways in which high school kids um, can use uh, sports, uh, sports controversies um, to learn about issues um, of oppression, of transgender rights, um, of racism. Um, and so we know kids are really interested in sports. About half of all, all high school kids play sports. Um, and then the other half are exposed to them, you know, if they're in schools. Um, and so we've just found that they, because they're naturally engaged and, and curious and, and many care about sports, that it's, it's, a, it's a way to engage them in all sorts of topics. Jacinda, you're in the classroom. I'm, I'm curious, you know, is this a topic that is, is really on the minds of your students? Yeah, so I teach uh, middle school, sixth through eighth grade social studies. Um, and students really came to me wanting to talk about this topic, which I felt like made it different than other, other subjects that I've taught in the past in either social studies or history. Um, and I think one of the things that made this topic, uh, or brought this topic to the forefront of their minds was, uh, the exposure it was getting on social media, um, by sports and athletes, but also just by other other people that they follow. They were hearing a lot about it before they even got to my classroom. So I, I kind of had to respond to their interest in that way. In the, the article in Education Week, there's a line here. It says, in the past four years, we have come a long way from the days of pundits telling athletes to, quote, shut up and dribble. So your middle school students are actually looking to athletes to have a voice, to have a stance. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I think athletes and uh, other musicians and um, just activists that they follow, they are um, really in tune to what is going on in the world in a way that I've noticed a difference. Even just in the past couple of years, I've noticed a difference in how um, connected my students seem to be to what's happening all over the world. Jacinda, with Ukraine, you talk about the importance of cultural boycotts and helping to explain soft power. Can you explain that for us a bit? Yeah, we we spent some time, especially uh, in my sixth grade class, exploring the idea of sanctions because kids were hearing hearing about sanctions. They were hearing about um, they were hearing about boycotts, but they weren't they didn't really understand them. So we talked about them in terms of, um, in terms of punishments uh, that were based economically. And one metaphor we use, a non-sports metaphor that we used is we talked about um, like a parent-child relationship and things that sometimes parents do to um, limit 
what a student can do either economically or socially. Um, and, and we use that metaphor to help them kind of understand the role that the U.S. and even private companies in the U.S. were playing. I mean, that, that makes sense. I'm a, I'm a grown man and, and sanctions are still pretty confusing to me. So I, I feel like these are some things that we can actually apply as adults to make these conversations a little bit easier. Uh, but Jacinda, real quickly, what is it about that age in middle school where it does take understanding what might be going on in their own lives, their own experiences to, to see the bigger world? Is there something about that developmental period that makes it extra important? Yeah, I think in in middle school, students are really starting to try to find out who they are and what their role is in the greater world. Um, And so their world kind of expands beyond just their family and their school. And they're trying to figure out if this is something that's really important in in the world. And with all these people that I look up to and follow, where do I stand? How do I understand it? And where do I stand? Um, And what do I do about it? As we talk about our experiences trying to explain difficult concepts like war to kids, I'm curious about your own experiences out there. As always, the number to call is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. I'm curious, have you had trouble explaining the war in Ukraine to your kids, your grandkids, or to your students if you're also a teacher? What has been helpful when trying to describe what is happening? Have you thought of using sports to help explain things like NATO or the sanctions that are taking place? And what have you found to be helpful when engaging younger people on this large political topic? Again, that number, 313-577-1019. Annalise, why does it matter that younger people are are interacting with this information and, and partaking in the dialogue around the war in Ukraine? Well, in social studies, we really, uh, the purpose of it is to get kids to sort of see their roles as uh, citizens, um, to be able to be active change agents, to be informed, um, to be able to make decisions um, that are grounded in facts and reasoning. Um, And, you know, in the article, we mentioned, you know, just the importance of having kids become uh, global citizens and the humanitarian aspect of this war and seeing, you know, what children are going through, um, it's just, it's it's really, it's captivating to kids, it's concerning, and we want children to, you know, care about their peers, um, not just in Ukraine, but in countries all over the world um, that are experiencing war and conflict. Do you think social media plays a role in this? I, I would imagine that, you know, it feels closer than ever because you can see these things directly on your phone if you're a kid. I think that's right. I mean, television, uh, social media, and, you know, as parents and teachers, we also have to be careful about how much children are are absorb, uh, absorbing and seeing. Um, it can be really scary. And so I think it's, you know, it's about being responsive to kids' questions and um, figuring out what, what they're interested in, what questions they have, answering them, not going into too much detail, um, just depending on their age and sort of their developmental uh, level and capacity to be able to engage with these really tough topics. Yeah. Is there an age that you would recommend to start diving into a topic like this? Well, you know, I mean, there's children 
very young children in Ukraine who are experiencing this. So I think, you know, children from across the world, um, if they're interested, uh, they can absolutely learn about it. There's research uh, out there that shows that young children are able to understand conflict. I mean, they have conflict in their daily lives. They have conflict. They're able to make conflict from the local to the global. I think it's just really listening to what kids' questions are, responding to them, not giving them more than what they're asking, and then stopping you know, when, when it's too much for them. But I absolutely think, you know, my nine-year-old has, a, has a, a, you know, pretty good understanding of what's going on. Um, so absolutely, I think elementary kids um, can, can, can grasp this. That idea of approaching it head on, of not avoiding it with kids when talking about tough topics, that does seem to be a really important ingredient of what you're recommending. Exactly. And it's not, it's about being factual and being accurate, but also, you know, knowing when to step back and, you know, some of the images on on television and social media are really horrifying and they're really scary. And kids, you know, my nine-year-old said, you know, how are the kids in the, in the subway station getting food? I mean, and so just listening to the kinds of questions that they have, um, but then also, you know, sort of, you know, limiting, you know, the kinds of exposure they're getting um, while being factual. It's a tough, it's tough to do, but um, you know, I think it's just really about listening to kids and responding to their questions. Yeah, I mean, that that's a heartbreaking thing to have your kid bring up to you. That's a, that's a really challenging um, question to answer and, and something to talk about. Is there advice that you would give to, to parents out there, to educators out there of, of dealing with that initial knee-jerk reaction and the emotion <laughs> of talking to your kids about something difficult like this? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, it's important to be factual and, uh, and, and to share details of what's happening. On the other hand, um, it's really important to focus on on what you can do to help. You know, our family has given money um, to UNICEF, uh, you know, to help the children in Ukraine. Um, you know, it's just that it was just as wonderful about, you know, teaching kids to um, write to their politicians and uh, representatives um, to be able to, um, you know, let them know that they want change. And so I think it's about focusing on what can you do to help um, and focusing on the helpers um, that can be comforting to kids. Jacinda, take us into the, the classroom. That That's a different set of boundaries that you really have to draw because these aren't your actual kids. They're your students. So talking about these topics away from the parents, is there a difficulty within that? Yeah, I think one difficulty comes from the fact that a lot of a lot of their exposure to what's happening is out of my control. So a lot of it is happening when they're at home um, on social media. Um, and, and sometimes that's that's monitored by parents and sometimes it's not. So they're, they're coming to, to me with a lot of concerns and questions that um, sometimes I feel prepared for and sometimes I don't. Um, and so I take the responsibility of, of what I do share and how I have them explore those questions really seriously. I, this time around, it, students came to me with lots of questions. I made sure to hear their questions first and then I tried to find um, resources to to share with them that would hopefully answer some of their questions and um, and give them the tools they needed to be able to answer their questions. Not necessarily tell them just from me what is going on, but but to show them that there is a way to find factual information out there, and it's not always what you're seeing on social media. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky balance for a teacher, I think, because you you want to make sure they have the facts, but you also want them to have the tools to do that even without you there giving them the facts. You want them to be able to get the facts on their own and understand what makes something factual and the difference between that and disinformation. And Jacinda, it sounds like you have found a a recipe of trying to empower kids, right? Annalise mentioned, you know, getting them to understand the concept of reaching out to the politicians that that represent you. I'm curious, you know, is is there magic to treating them like adults to some degree to make them feel like their voices matter in the same way they see their parents have voices or or that matter and have conversations that matter? Yeah, I think there's. There's definitely magic into in treating kids like like people. I wouldn't even necessarily say adults. I would just say treating them as as a counterpart in a in a mutual trusting relationship. I think, and I think, um, I think that's part of why kids were able to come to me and other teachers at our school with their concerns and with their fears is because um, they know they're not just going to be ignored or fed some sort of line to make their fears go away. They know that we'll, we'll take their fears seriously and we'll, we'll help them have the tools to feel empowered to be able to answer their questions and do something about it. This is Detroit Today. We're talking about how to effectively teach students and talk to kids about the war in Ukraine and other large, complicated topics through the lens of sports. And as always, you're part of this conversation. I'd love to hear from you. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Have you had trouble explaining the war in Ukraine to your kids, maybe your grandkids, students if you're a teacher? What has been helpful for you when trying to describe what is happening in the world? Have you thought of using sports to help explain things like NATO or the sanctions that are taking place? And what have you found helpful when engaging younger people on this large political topic, or do you think that some of these topics shouldn't be discussed with kids at all? That's the question that's on the table for you here on Detroit Today. That number again, 313-577-1019. Coming up next, we will continue this conversation with your calls here on WDET. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on WDET. We're currently talking to Annalise Halverson, an associate professor of teacher education specializing in social studies, and Jacinda, Jacinda Bowman, a science and social studies teacher at the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, about an article they worked together on uh, for Education Week that looks at breaking down difficult concepts like the war in Ukraine through the metaphor of sports. We're taking your calls on this too, 313-577-1019. And I do want to get some callers in the mix here because I think this is a topic that's touching a nerve with our listeners. Let's go to Phyllis in Warren. You're on Detroit Today. Hi, good 
Good morning. I I think that I have to say I have some disagreement with what the conversation is regarding um, the teaching of uh, metaphor for a very horrible subject. I think that what teachers need to do, if this is really an issue in the classroom, bring in grandparents or bring in some of the refugees who fled Europe during the Second World War. These are people who lived through it. I was born in Chicago, and I lived in Chicago, and during the war we had to have blackouts. We had to keep our uh, lights, uh, our drapes closed and lights off, if you will, at certain times to make sure that there was a darkness over the city. And these are things that are important in terms of the real way. I also think kids get too much information. I think, yes, they can get it on their cell phones and their tablets and whatever, and they also can get it on the news. And when I was a child and the Second World War was going on, that isn't how we got it. It would be through the headlines of a newspaper, or it would be perhaps when we went to the movies, there would be a news short that would show some of the things that were going on. And the worst part of all was, of course, when they evacuated the concentration camps and those soldiers that did the evacuation were American soldiers as well as others who, when they came home, couldn't even talk about the horrors that they saw. The bodies stacked in piles like garbage. The people emaciated and coming out in rags, bones going through their skin because they were so thin and had so, no food. These are the realities of war. I think a sports metaphor is not to my liking. Uh, my children are grown. I have great-grandchildren. Um it's just not the way I would want to teach them. I think they need from first-hand experience, from flags hanging in windows with stars on them, symbolizing either a lost um, family member or a lost uh, soldier. Uh, if it was gold star and if it was a blue star, it meant that they had someone away in service. And if you rode the tra- public transportation in Chicago, you could see these little flags hanging in windows. This was how we had to deal with it. We had to deal with rationing. We had to deal with victory gardens. You could not buy gasoline for your car unless you could show that you had a victory garden and were growing some of your own food somehow for yourselves in the city. Phyllis, Phyllis, let me, let me, I really appreciate your call and your perspective on it. You know, you mentioned the idea of getting news or information from limited sources, right? A, a newsreel before a movie or headlines. But is there something now? I mean, things have changed. We do have more information that's coming to us. Don't you think that there could be a, a different approach, maybe a softer approach than, than what you're advocating for? This is not a soft topic. It's a hard horrible topic and it's something that has to be looked at as it is and when you see too much of it you become inured to it and these this is not the way to do it do it with reality it is reality it isn't a game and again elderly people coming into the classroom one day a week and talking about their personal experiences would do more to make it real and that instead of making it feigned 
and and not um, uh, sure. something that you could pass over. Phyllis and Warren, I really appreciate that call, a very powerful call and a very important perspective. Jacinda, is that something that you've used in the classroom? Is, is bringing in firsthand accounts to maybe really, you know, nail in the reality of a situation like a war in Ukraine or a Holocaust survivor in the classroom? Um, I, have, I haven't personally. I know that we do um, expose kids to the reality, students through their reading um get to read stories of the holocaust that's um we explore world war ii in a um, history research unit but i haven't i would love to i think that is a, a great approach to um allowing kids to see the like really personal effects of war um and the realities of war i think that i i would certainly be open to it it's not something i've done yet Annalise, uh, I, I want to ask you, you know, is, is there the possibility of too much too soon? You know, Phyllis brought up that point of, of these images maybe being too brutal or, or really desensitizing kids. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, no, I really appreciate Phyllis's points, and I completely agree that these other strategies of teaching um, about Ukraine are would be incredibly powerful. It's that human connection. It's that human experience. And just to clarify, you know, we are not advocating sports be the, the metaphor for, for, for war. It's just that it can be a hook to engage them. We know kids are following sports. And so that's why we thought, you know, if they're engaged with sports, this could be a, a lever to help them, um, you know, learn about the war in other ways. Um, but I, I completely agree that they're absolutely, we can expose kids too much too soon. And that's why we really need to follow their lead um, and, see, and look carefully at how they're responding um, and keep going if they're if they're asking questions and, that, and then stop uh, when it's too much for them. Right. We started this conversation talking about kids in the classroom, kids in your home, Annalise, that were mm-hmm. actually bringing this to the table. You, you didn't bring it up. They brought it to you and how mm-hmm. to approach that. Um, RZS on Twitter writes in saying, young people have many questions. I think teachers are perfectly capable of teaching this and clarifying. Hopefully they can explain some of the horrors that are on social media. I applaud the teachers trying to make sense of this horrible crisis that affects us all. Appreciate that comment. Twitter is a place that you can engage with us. Also on Facebook, we'll integrate your comments into the conversation here. And we do have open lines at 313-577-1019 if you want to join the conversation here on Detroit Today. Annalise, one thing I was thinking about reading this article is the idea of uh, a winning side and a losing side in, in sports and how sports could be potentially a comparison for morality. How, how do we navigate who is good or who is bad when we're talking about a global conflict like Russia and Ukraine? It's a great question, Ryan. And, you know, kids, it's, they do tend to see the world sometimes um, in stark contrast and, and black and white. And certainly with a game, with a sports game, there is a winner and a loser. But, you know, there's sometimes there's ties and sometimes there's overtime. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it's much more complex than a game, though, of course. And um, it's it's very hard to 
uh, you know, for kids to just see uh, Putin as being evil and, you know, the rest of the West and the, and the rest of the world as being good. It's much more complex. And um, but in, in this case, you know, it's really interesting for kids. You know, my kids have been seeing how divided and we all have been seeing how divided the country is. But to see, you know, the U.S. really coming together um, in support um, of Ukraine, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike, this has been more unifying than something they've seen in a long time. Yeah, that that idea of of unity is one aspect of it, but there's also the idea of political protest. That's the other aspect that mm-hmm. we see here in this country and in places like Ukraine and Russia. Uh, so, a question for, for really both of you, Annalise, you can start. When we're breaking down the idea of protest to kids, how is it best to explain that concept? Well, I mean, for for decades, for centuries, people have been protesting, and I think it's important for kids to understand the history of it, that people have a right to use their voice, to use, um, you know, boycotts, um, to use their words. Um, and in this article, we're talking about athletes, you know, really, you know, they're citizens, and they have views, and they have perspectives, and um, and kids look up to them. And so it is, it's really important for kids to be able to understand that, People can use their power, you know, to affect change. Jacinda, how would you go about explaining the idea of political protest to your classroom? I think that being being a teacher at a place based school in Detroit is a really um, it's it's a privileged place to come from because um, Detroit is such a place of activism, and I think we always start from really young ages at our school learning about really local issues and what activists are doing to fight for their needs and their rights in Detroit. And so by the time kids get to me in middle school, they already have a really good idea of what what protest looks like and what activism looks and feels like. Um, and I think no matter what aspect of either history or government or social studies I'm teaching, I think it's a really important, uh, an important part of that story is to look at, yes, there are injustices and yes, these are the things that um, are, are really horrible in, in the world, but these are also the people who are fighting to change those things. I think that's, that's a really key message for kids to get no matter what the topic is. And Jacinda, that makes a lot of sense as you're a teacher at James and Grace Lee Boggs School. Activism is kind of baked right into the title of that. Some of the biggest activists ever come out of Detroit, no doubt. Um, I want to open up those phone lines, 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Daryl in Dearborn. You're on Detroit Today. Daryl. Good afternoon. What's on your mind? Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, how you doing? I, I'm enjoying the conversation today, and uh, just to keep everything in in, in uh, perspective, uh, I am 65 years old. I'm an Army brat. Uh, the first 21 years of my life, eight and a half, I spent with my father traveling. And he fought in in the Korean War, Korean Reconstruction, Vietnam War, and I'm also a retired Detroit police officer. And as Phyllis was mentioning, the Holocaust and bringing in seniors to who have things. I think we have perfect examples right here in America when you had the Black Holocaust during the 1619 uh, when they brought the slave ships and the slaves in America. That was an atrocity, and that's something that is not mentioned. And many times, even in war, um, they use sports. They use the analogy of sports. And I think 
when you're dealing with children, they may not always understand what war is all about, but if you, from a perspective, it gives them a general idea. And, you know, children are very resilient today. They are like sponges. They absorb, okay? And they can filter things much better than we as adults. We're the ones that kind of put them in a pinhole. Yeah. What the ladies are doing are great, is great. And I think if they do the comparisons, what's going on in Ukraine, uh, World War One, Two, Three, Korean War, Vietnam conflict, which was a war, uh, Afghan, Afghanistan war, and even what happened here in America, I, I think they'll be well-rounded. And, and I, I applaud what the ladies are doing. Don't change. Uh, Phyllis, I, I enjoyed what she had to say. She brought in some good perspectives. And there's some things I agree with what, what she had to say, and there's some I disagree. But there, I think as a whole, it's all valuable. Daryl and Dearborn, fantastic call. Thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts. Um, Annalise, one thing I'm noticing with the callers, there's a bit of a generational divide, right? We're talking about firsthand accounts of people that actually lived through some of these other conflicts and the importance of hearing those stories. But I'm also curious, the way we talk about things in general has certainly changed from the 60s and 70s, right? The way you would approach this in the classroom then is very different now, I would imagine. But you tell me. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. And I appreciate the call too. And, and applaud, uh, appreciate Daryl's service, um, certainly. Um, definitely, there's ways in which social studies has changed and the ways in which we engage kids in global events. Um, but a lot of it has remained the same. I mean, kids in the 60s and 70s were learning about these issues in, in, the, in the streets and, you know, in their own experiences, um, you know, through the Detroit Rebellion and uh, other protests, you know, as well as in the classroom. And so, I mean, I think there's definitely been uh, some, some shifts in how, uh, how kids learn, especially with regard to um, media coverage and the just incredible amounts of information now kids have to sort through. It's really hard. It's really complicated. It's really, there's so much disinformation out there. Um, and so it's the skills that social studies have ed- educators need to use have really shifted because we've really had to really engage in media literacy and how do kids, you know, how do they, how are they able to understand what they're seeing and, and evaluate the sources um, and look for credibility. Annalise, that that's a, a, maybe an entirely different conversation, that idea of media literacy. But I, I do have to ask you, do you see this generation having a higher media literacy? I mean, where, where do we stand right now in terms of kids understanding and sorting through, you know, misinformation, disinformation, fake news and, and all that on social media? Yeah, I mean, actually, Jacinda was Jacinda mentioned that to me, that a lot of the kids in the class, um, you know, are using social media and getting a lot of their information from social media. And so it's um, definitely, it's something that we're seeing that's that's a shift in, it's a, it's a generational, you know, shift. Um, and social studies has changed in that regard. How we teach social studies has had to change in that regard. Yeah, Jacinda, can you elaborate that a little bit on how kids are processing all of this information? Yeah, I think um, on the one hand, to answer one of your questions, I think that because there's so much that they're exposed to, they they are a lot more literate in terms of media. I, there's, I've had experiences where kids can point out right away why this website doesn't seem legitimate or what, what, why this information doesn't fit right with them. Um, and also they are exposed to so much. There's, there's just, it seems for some of them that there's just constant input. And so, um, 
I, it is, it's hard to kind of compete for that space. Sometimes it's hard to, I think that's why there's sometimes is a challenge of making something feel relevant to them just because there's so much they're exposed to and so much that they're interested in. Um, and so that, I think that is why, one of the reasons why this using sports to kind of hook them in or using the, the social media accounts they follow to kind of hook them in um, helps, helps then teach something that otherwise may not, may not be able to compete for, for the interest that they have in all of the other aspects of social media. Right, yeah, cutting through that noise, uh, I'm mm-hmm. sure, can be very difficult. Um, really fantastic conversation. As we walk away from this, I, I do want to try to give some practical advice to parents that are out there listening. Jacinda, kind of the main takeaways here when we're using sports or other metaphors to talk about um, huge conflicts like Ukraine, go ahead and, and give some advice for parents that are like, okay, I heard this conversation. I'm going to go home. I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, I think uh, it's hard for me to give parental advice because <laughs> I, I'm not a parent yet, but um, I I think my approach with t- uh, talking about this topic has always been um, start where the kids are at. So what have they heard? What are their, What are they curious about? What are their fears? And go from there and maybe I, I kind of take the approach of let's let's look into this together. Let's find out what information we can find to answer our questions. What information can we find to, to quell some of our fears? Annalise, you are a parent. So for the parents out there, go <laughs> ahead and give them the, the main takeaways that would be important for them to know. Yeah, I mean, I do. I really think it's it's critical for us as global citizens to know what's going on in the world and to be engaged and to ask questions and figure out how we can help. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to emphasize is that, you know, kids look up to athletes. And so following some of their favorite athletes and what are they saying? Because athletes are really using their platforms to, you know, speak out about, you know, rights, human rights and oppression and so forth. So, I mean, I think they can, you know, look, look to what the athletes are saying, um, watch the news, you know, in the, in, to the extent that they're, it's interest to them and then, you know, turn it off and do something else, you know, uh, when it's too much. That is Annalise Helverson, an associate professor of teacher education specializing in social studies. We are also joined by Jacinda Bowman, science and social studies teacher at James and Grace Lee Boggs School. They recently collaborated on an article for Education Week that tries to break down concepts of war, sanctions, our global economy through the metaphor of sports. Annalise and Jacinda, really fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. us. Coming up next on Detroit Today, we're going to focus on opera right here in Detroit. Some big changes happening downtown at Detroit Opera and the returning to the stage, the main stage for the first time since the pandemic. That's ahead here on Detroit Today. Today, I'm Ryan Patrick Cooper. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. As the most recent COVID wave dies down in America and in Detroit, more venues are continuing to open up. One of them is the opera. The local opera theater here in Detroit is opening up with its first main stage production since the pandemic. 
but with a few changes. It is now called Detroit Opera rather than the Michigan Opera Theater, and they will be opening uh, April 2nd with La Boheme, but in a very different style than is typically portrayed in the show. And if you don't even know what an opera is or what that production is, we're going to ask some stupid questions for smart people right now because we're joined by Yuval Sharon. He is the artistic director of the Detroit Opera. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So that's the first big thing we have to break down, this name change. Mm. Michigan Opera Theater. We've Mm. known this for for a long time. Mm. Mm. And that recently changed... uh, just a few weeks ago, not too long ago. Yeah. Um, why, why the name change to Detroit Opera? <laughs> I think in many ways the name uh, Detroit Opera feels like that's already what the company has been since 1996 when the company was rooted in downtown Detroit. I mean, that was a really bold move of this company to say a city like Detroit deserves its to have its own opera company, um, not anywhere else but in the heart of Detroit. And, you know, that was an incredible achievement by David DiChiara, the founder of Michigan Opera Theater. But we are entering a new era now. As we all know, there are huge shifts in our culture. And the art that this city, I think, deserves needs to be uh, absolutely for the city of Detroit. And that needs to be the first and foremost thing that we say about ourselves, that this is an, this is art for our community. And that name change, while it seems in a way slight, <laughs> I think does signal that from now on, every single thing that we do uh, is going to hold up our own communities. Ideally, our community sees, uh, sees themselves reflected on our stage, whether it's an opera that's 200 years old or an opera that's two years old, you know, um, that every, in every single case, we have the chance to feature the art and the talent of the singers, the designers that make Detroit so vibrant and, and so exciting. This is also, you know, for you as the new artistic director, is, is it about putting your stamp a bit on this organization and and marking an arrival to some degree? Uh, No, really not. Um, I have to say because, you know, um, it's not about me. It's about the art and it's about the city. It's about the culture. Um, It's, um, you know... my time will be will be limited for some reason, you know, whether it's because of an untimely death. I hope not, uh, because you know there could be any reason why. Uh, that would you know, be a terrible exclusive right now. That would be yes. <laughs> I, I I don't want that to happen. Uh, I, I prefer not. I prefer to make it to opening night of Bohem. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> but I, that's just a way to say you know all of us. You know we're 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 uh, committed and devoted to. Um, to uh, the art form and what the art form can mean for the city. It, it transcends any single person. That's what makes it exciting. That's what makes opera, especially for people who don't know anything about opera, it's what I think makes opera so vital uh, and so electrifying is it's all of these different people that are working together uh, beyond their own ego, beyond themselves, uh, to create something together. You know, the word uh, opera in Italian, it just means work, you know, like a work, because what do you call this weird thing? You know, you have music, you have poetry, you have theater, you have fashion, you have all of these different art forms, and they meet in this middle place. Like, what do you call that? You just have to call it a work, you know, because what else What else could it be, you know? And I love that notion that it is, it is definitely more than the sum of its parts. You know, you can take the individual pieces away. Yeah, I like the music. Yeah, I love the costumes, whatever. But, but that in that, that section where that intersection of all those different arts is super exciting. And that's why uh, I, I, I want to lead with that ethos that it's, it's, it's in the end not about me. It's about us. You mentioned that name change to Detroit Opera 
connecting with the community more. It feels mm -hmm. like there's a, a greater sense of ownership mm -hmm. with that title, um, but also the aspect of accessibility. You know, yes. I think of classical music. I think of what the Detroit Symphony Orchestra is doing. They acknowledge that getting younger people, a more diversified audience, is a priority and mm -hmm. a challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does does mm -hmm. opera have those same challenges right now in terms of making it more accessible, welcoming a more diverse audience into the the, the patronage? I think there are a lot of challenges with opera. I think most people would recognize that, whether they are opera lovers or whether they've only heard about opera. Most likely, if you only ever heard about opera, you might think, uh, that's probably not for me. I don't speak Italian. You know, I didn't go to music school. You know, I don't play an instrument. My real belief is that opera is for everybody, that you don't need a music degree you don't need uh, you don't need a lot of pre-existing knowledge to actually appreciate what's happening in front of you because uh, if you're invited in then I think you can just be absolutely awestruck by the beauty of the human voice and by human creation uh, especially at that scale of opera that's part of what makes opera so exciting is it's just so so large you know it's so audacious in its in its scale so um, I think any way that I can signal and that Detroit Opera can signal that there's no barrier for anybody to actually connect with these operas and looking for every opportunity possible to break down those barriers, um, th there are big cultural obstacles with the word opera, you know, and, and with the notion of opera, especially as we think of it as a European art form. But that's why, uh, going back to the name change, uh, there's no reason we shouldn't think of opera as a Detroit art form. You know, it is it is our art form and we're making it ours. It is uh, surprising to me the amount of musical diversity that's within mm -hmm. contemporary opera. Mm -hmm. I recently saw uh, Toshi Reagan's take of Parable of the Sower, yeah. uh, originally by Octavia E. Butler, mm -hmm. and it was bluesy. Yeah. I mean, the music yeah. was yeah. all bluesy. It was not what you would think of or what I would think of as an opera. Um, so there is more diversity than basically just 200-year-old Italian productions that Absolutely. are happening on stage. Oh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, I couldn't agree more that there's, you know, there's so many different, especially when you're thinking about American operas, there's so many different perspectives and musical styles that I think opera can integrate. Um, so La Boheme, which we'll do uh, this uh, opening on Saturday, um, you know, that is, you know, classic 19th century Italian uh, opera, and we're doing it with a twist, uh, which uh, we'll get to, I'm guessing. Uh, but, <laughs> but after that, I'm really excited that the next project we do after that is the opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X by Anthony Davis, who prior to this opera, he wrote it in 1986. Prior to this, he was a jazz pianist. He's still an, an accomplished, amazing pianist. But this was his first attempt at writing an opera. And he was so uncompromising in the writing of this piece. It has all the whole spectrum of musical styles from jazz and blues to high modernism to absolutely operatic singing to all a huge range. And uh, instead of it just feeling like a stylistic grab bag, he makes it all feel so unified. And that's what's miraculous about this score. Let's talk about La Boheme, La Boheme which mm -hmm. is opening this weekend at Detroit Opera. Um, real quickly, give me the background on this story, the importance of this production, but also how you're going to be changing it up a little bit. Yeah, so um, La Boheme was the first fully staged opera in the Detroit Opera House when it opened in 1996. Um, so, of course, after a two-and-a-half-year hiatus, uh, it's really moving to come back and do La Boheme again. But I think it's an important moment to say we're not just repeating and we're not just regurgitating the past. We're going to show that we have also been evolving. We've been 
questioning our past. We've been uh, looking at it differently and trying to see what else is buried underneath the many, uh, you know, many decades of prejudices about the piece, um, and maybe some might say cliches uh, about the piece. Trying to take a lot of those away so that we can see what's really happening in this in this miraculous score, this incredible piece. So we're doing it. Um, in reverse order, we're going to start at the end of the opera. Um, the main story is really boy meets girl, and then and then girl dies. I mean, it's a very simple story. <laughs> so, um, and I I somewhat I, I joke about that because that does not sound like you know why are you in a theater for an hour and a half if that's all that happens? But it's really so much about atmosphere and color and the creation of uh, the, the the evocation of what it means to be young and in love and falling in love for the first time, which everyone can connect to and everyone can relate to. It's part of why La Boheme is the most popular opera. Um, that said, um, there's something really exciting about saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna question the normal way of doing things. Let's start. Let's start with the death because, in many ways, it feels like we are emerging from a time of death. You know, this this period, this this two and a half year period of COVID. Um, and everything accompanying COVID, whether you look at uh, the the reckoning with race, whether you look at the war in Ukraine, it's this has been a very, very dark period. I think I was hoping that when we got to this point, April 2022, that we'd be completely emerged from it. Obviously, we're not. You know, we're still facing COVID and we're still facing a number of these, of these items. But the arts um, and music and performance can remind us why we're living in the first place. We all know death is coming to us, but but why do we live? You know, and was life worth it? And I think by saying we're we're just gonna do the death right away and then go backwards and show that actually uh, the, the the this moment where they fell in love, we should all be so lucky to have experienced that once in our lives. And um, that to me feels so life affirming. Uh, exactly the kind of affirmation of life that I, I think is the reason people go to the opera or people go to, to music or go to live performance at all. Okay, you're selling some tickets here, Yuval. Nice work. <laughs> um, is it just a matter of switching the acts or is it a little more rearranged than that? Because you know, you're know you making it sound very simple, but I would imagine more <laughs> goes into it. Yeah, in many ways. In many ways, it's a very, very simple um, which I hope is part of what makes it so inviting. You don't need to have studied up on La Boheme to just come and enjoy it. It would be the same as you know, you know, some of the the best TV shows I watched uh, during the pandemic, where you couldn't do anything. You know, they told stories out of order. You know, they would do a bunch of reverse chronology as kind of the the, the, the naming for it, which is the mystery behind. Okay, well, we know that happened, but how did they get there? You know, I was a I watched all the Ozark series. You know, during <laughs> during pandemic, it was very depressing because it's a very heavy and violent show. <laughs> Nevertheless, I just loved the episodes where where they went back in time and they said, "Oh, that's why." Okay, that's why that happened, and it was very rewarding as an audience member. And it's it's fun to think that you know we can add a sense of mystery uh, to to the occasion of this opera. But more importantly, we get to hear the music totally differently. So if you are an opera fan, or even if you're not an opera fan, but you know La Boheme from Moonstruck or from, from any other place where La Boheme, if you've seen Rent, you know, or there's, you know, La Boheme has appeared everywhere in popular culture. This is a brand new chance to, to hear it with fresh ears. That's Yuval Sharon. He is the artistic director of Detroit Opera. And La Boheme will be staged this weekend. You can find information over at the Detroit Opera website. Yuval, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great to be here. That is Detroit Today. I'm Ryan Patrick Hooper. 
Thank you so much for joining us here on WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Sam Corey, who is especially helpful today. Program director is Joan Isabella, technical director, engineer, and resident metal man, Matthew Trevethan.